This show may contain words that would offend the sensibility of certain habitués of monasteries. It's Thursday, June 20th, 2019. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and the news watch never stops. We have new details of a strange new development in the field of children's heads. A study of 1,200 people conducted by researchers at the University of the Sunshine Coast found 41% of participants aged between 18 and 30 had developed a bony lump on the back of their skull. We suspect that the reason for this bone spur formation is because they carried their head forward, but not just carrying their head forward, they carried their head forward for a long period of time. Now, what's most concerning about the findings is the horn-like spurs typically don't present until far later in adulthood. It is unclear why that would be the most disturbing and also unclear why an Australian university would name itself after a casino. But there you have it. Teens. Oh, those teens, those crazy teens. What are they getting up to next? The answer is they're growing horns. We now have a youth so afflicted. He has asked to be called Alex and that his voice be disguised. Alex, how are you adopting to your life with horns? Oh, my God. Guys, you swore you disguised his voice. Alex, I am so sorry. I hope being identified like that doesn't cause you too much difficulty in school. Yeah, I know. Kids can be cruel. So these aren't horns in the musical sense. They're not horns in the calumny against the Jews sense. They're not horns in the Shakespearean sense of being a cuckold. They're not horns in the animal sense. Kids aren't getting horny in the sense that, you know, kids are always horny. And we all know how kids get horny. They read Shakespearean descriptions of cuckoldry. No, if anything, these are tiny fragments of spurs. They're not spurs in the opposite of a loop road sense. They're not spurs in the cowboy boot sense, and they're not spurs in the San Antonio sense. They're spurs in the prompt a conversation sense. They've certainly done that. These teeny tiny bony projection and thesophytes. And thesophytes are common in older people. But a couple of Australian researchers in papers as many as three years old document these enthesophytes showing up in younger people. And the researchers then hypothesized that the horns could be coming from the cell phone slump when you bend over and peer at the screen. Now, I have no training in posture, in cell phones, in cowboy boots, in prominent exostosis projecting from the acapital squama. It's the actual title of one of the studies. But I do know this. Cell phones are not causing horns. This is a tantalizing possibility that for over a year went unnoticed and only now blew up because a BBC series used it as an example of how function affects physiognomy. But there was never, here's the problem, there was never a baseline established to see if these uh, little spurs were prevalent before there were cell phones. No one ever really looked at the little tiny fragments in kids before. So to say they're showing up now is inaccurate. Maybe they were there already. And you know what? Let me quote a Slate article in an excellent debunking of this supposed spur pandemic. Quote, if you've got a spur, cool. 
your body's doing what it does best, adapting to the stressors you put it through, whatever they may be. As long as it's not bothering you, you're fine. Do you understand that, Alex? Alex is here again. Alex, I hope that makes you feel okay. Good. Listen, just promise me this, Alex. Don't go bad and become a vuvuzela or get into smooth jazz. All right, such a waste. On the show today, I spiel about the most ambitious climate deal the world has ever seen, not kidding, right here in New York, and it almost didn't happen. But first, I enjoy modern R&B stylings, a subtle use of vocal harmony, mild rhythmic syncopation, mixed minor or major key tonality, and mixed acoustic and electric instrumentation. And all this by telling Pandora that I want to hear more songs like the theme to Moonlighting. The Music Genome Project was an experiment to take musical tastes and find out what they really mean and then throw them back to you as a consumer so that you can experience a mix of songs and styles that you didn't even know you liked. And if you don't like it, there's a thumbs down button. The architect behind Pandora's Music Genome Project is Nolan Gasser, and he is out with a new book explaining how he does what he does. It's called Why You Like It, The Science and Culture of Musical Taste. Brand loyalties? I'll tell you one. I'm a Pandora guy, and I'll tell you why. Years ago, they came out with something called the Music Genome Project, where you give them a couple of artists or songs that you like, and they tell you other artists that you might like. And this worked. It really worked for me. I've gotten into so many artists that I never would have gotten into otherwise because they saw, oh, you like this guy and that guy and those girls and this group and also this weird song that is not at all like the other songs from this people's catalog, you might like, and they have a pretty good batting average. So when I found out that the man, the mind behind the Music Genome Project was out with a book exactly on the subject of the science and culture of musical taste, I had to have him on. Nolan Gasser is here. The name of his book is Why You Like It. And I've already told you the subtitle, Science and Culture of Musical Taste. Thanks for joining me, Nolan. Absolutely. It's great to be here, Michael. Thank you. So when you were, let's just go in in time order. You are a composer and a musician. Are you a musicologist? I am indeed. I am a a verified musicologist with a PhD in, in musicology from Stanford University. So I've got the credentials. That's good. And is this why Pandora hired you or how'd you come to work for them? Well, I certainly played a role. The story is actually way back in 2000, February. I was uh, at the late stage of my of my doctoral program, and I got an email from a guy named Tim Westergren, who just a couple months earlier had gotten some seed funding uh, for a startup company. It was called Savage Beast Technologies yeah. back then. I met with Tim at this coffee house at Stanford, and he laid out his vision of, you know, trying to, you know, fix what was wrong with the music industry. And there had to be a better way to connect musicians and fans. And so by combining music analysis with uh, machine learning and algorithms, uh, this was an opportunity. Tim himself was a musician, uh, is a musician, uh, but not trained uh, in the in the depths of music analysis. So he did need somebody to help him really, you know, create and, and sort of realize this vision of the Music Genome Project. And so I'm the architect of all that. So I understand that he has this vision and you have this expertise and you are excited by his vision. And there is also 
the possibility of machine learning. But what do you, how does your knowledge interact with what the machine can do, which is what Pandora became and the Music Genome Project became? Right. So the the real brains behind the actual algorithm and the machine learning is a guy named Will Glazer. He was one of the three founders along with uh, Tim Westergren. And so the idea was, you know, I would come up with Tim's involvement with the actual genome. What is the taxonomy? What are those factors that we would use to dive, you know, under the hood of the actual songs and works to figure out what's going on? How does the melody operate? What's going on in the harmony and the rhythm? And then we would give that information in a quantitative form to Will. And Will would obviously use his skills to, you know, to create an algorithm. But we would help because every single gene, if you will, has to be weighted, has to have a certain value, because if, if every single factor is totally even, it's going to be hard to figure out what's important in a given song. Mm-hmm. So it's a pretty complex, as Will talked about it, it was 500 dimensional space. Uh, and it's, you know, so it's a complex mathematical thing way beyond my, my pay grade. But it really was a, a sort of a joint effort between the engineering team and the music operation that makes the actual music music genome project work. Okay, and was this subjective for you to figure out the major genes? I mean, if we're t- it's an analogy and DNA is a scientific structure so you could tell what the overriding organism is. But if I give you, you know, a song you write about in the book, CCR's Proud Mary, what is it is it a matter of empiricism to say the major thing going on is this or is it you as the expert who say, well, You've got elements of a certain kind of guitar sound. You've got elements of a certain kind of lyrics. But you also have going on what Beethoven has going on in the fifth. So that's my question. Was Were you bringing a lot of kind of subjectivity in trying to put your finger on the important characteristics of the genes of these songs? Right. Well, it's a complex question. So, you know, art is by its nature subjective, right? It, it, you know, it's especially music, it's sound. Um, but if we're going to actually be able to connect songs together, we have to try to make it as objective as possible. And indeed, musicology, music analysis is grounded in objective facts, because you can talk about what are the scales being used? What's the shape of the melody? What uh, is the actual harmonic progression? What is the the rhythmic language? What is the, the tempo and the meter? When we're creating the notion of a music genome project, you're right, it's an analogy, a metaphor. I took it very seriously. The idea is that we could break music down into different species. So you got the rock species, the jazz species, classical, and so forth. And so what are all of those factors? What are all those as objective as possible genes that are underlying everything from the Sex Pistols to Pink Floyd to Muse, whatever it may be? So then once the genes are defined and we have a nice, we have a kind of a, a sort of a description of how those should be approached by a trained analyst, they'll put on, you know, the headphones, they'll listen to Proud Mary and they'll say, okay, here's the tempo, here's how the harmony is used, here's the timbre of genes. John Fogarty's voice. Mm -hmm. These are things that can be objectively identified. And so that's how we're able to make connections between one song and another, is to try to find those as objective as possible. Clearly, there's going to be some interpretation on the part of the of the listener, because it's not, you know, it's not pure math. What are so what weird results were you getting that you hadn't anticipated? And uh, maybe you could take me through some where you realized, huh? That really is similar. And somewhere you were like, this is an odd quirk. I wonder what's going on. 
Yeah, well, you know, certainly in the early days, we were very nervous about if this thing worked, if you really could do this, because it was sort of untested. And so one of the things we came into contact with is our own our own biases. And I tell the story of, uh, in the in, in the book, of there was uh, a match between Eleanor Rigby by the Beatles and a song by the Bee Gees. It's a, a 1941 mining disaster. Picks up the rice in the church where a wedding has been. Lives in a dream, waits at the window, wearing the face that she keeps in a jar by the door. Or have they given up and all gone home to bed? Thinking those who once existed must be dead. Have you seen my wife, Mr. Jones? And, you know, I I did not analyze the BG song and I was just kind of not thinking clearly and I was imagining it was more of a disco era, right. more, more contemporary. Because you were and thinking so, 70s BGs, but of course 60s BGs was very in fact they were ripping off the Beatles. Let's just they, let's just face it. They were apps, they were trying to be sort of the new the, the new Beatles. <laughs> yeah. You're exactly yeah. right. So even down to the you know the harmonic language, the the you know the the use of the the, the timbres of the voices, even the use of a string instrument. So yeah, I mean that that's I mean from a purely musical and 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 music genome project there was nothing surprising there. Uh but I think this goes into uh this broader sense of music and culture that there are so many things that impact whether we like mu- a song or or a particular artist or a, any kind of music or not is that it certainly is grounded in the music, right. but it's also grounded in our, you know, our thoughts, our experiences, how we feel that an artist matches our own sense of identity. There's the famous story, which I also tell, of um, somebody creating a Sarah McLaughlin station and, and, and hearing a, a Celine Dion song in it, and just, you know, from a non-music standpoint that was anathema how could you possibly i hate celine dion she's everything i i i you know that doesn't it doesn't match my personality from a musical standpoint from a music genome standpoint very closely aligned you come out at night that's when the energy comes and the dark sides Once we were able to make that connection, the artist said, I hate you, Pandora, because you made me realize that I love Celine Dion. <laughs> so, uh, Yeah. Can the insights unearthed by the Music Genome Project teach songwriters how to crack the code and write hits? Well, I always say that if that were true, I wouldn't be talking to you. I'd be on my yacht in the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. Um, Listening to uh, Yacht Rock, another <laughs> Pandora category. Or, or not, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I think it's impossible, you know, it's kind of a question to whether, you know, m- sort of machine learning and AI can replicate, you know, uh, w- those qualities that, that make us feel, you know, a certain, you know, feeling or, you know, put us in a certain mindset or, you know, or make us, or make, make a song a hit. You can say that, for example, that a song that repeats a you know a really intoxicating riff over and over again, like in Satisfaction or you know in ten, ten million songs, that that's a good quality uh, that would make for a hit. But it has to be the right riff, and. I don't know that, you know, there's really anything specifically that's in the Music Genome Project that could tell you this combination of notes. But again, it's got to be the right chord progression. Give me, give me a couple from a couple different genres that fit that mold. Well, I mean, you've got certainly in, uh, in I mean, the blues is an example. I mean, that's a 12-bar, you know, chord progression generally with the same uh, the same set of chords, the same movement that underlines all blues song. There's kind of a, you know, one, six, um, four, five progression that's used in everything from by songs by the police to Michael Jackson to John Denver, uh, Elton John. Um, but, you know, again, just knowing that doesn't make them, I mean, if you just use that chord progression, doesn't mean that you're going to have it. Head. Right. And finally, as a user, if I want, what are some hacks? What are some great ways to use uh, Pandora and the Music Genome Project to expose us to music we didn't know we'd like, but that we do like? I have heard program in some unusual songs by an artist that'll get to interesting results. So one of the things I always tell people is to make sure that you kind of tr- take time to train your station. So, you know, the first, uh, you know, you know, few, few, few dozen times that you are on the station, do a lot of thumbs up and thumbs down, which will fine tune those, you know, musicological elements tied to the Music Genome Project. And so hopefully, you know, get out certain kinds of instruments or certain kinds of, you know, tempos or whatever that are less, less uh, akin to your taste. But the other thing that I really would recommend is to, in order to make it not too you know, narrow in its scope is to add two, three, four, five different seeds, if you will, to a station. And they can be, you know, within the same general realm, or they can be further apart. But that way, you will be surprised because you'll hear, you know, music that comes from a, you know, a different, a different space, partly because it's, you know, coming from a different seed. Uh, So that's one way to avoid getting getting stuck in a rut. Nolan Gasser is the author of Why You Like It, The Science and Culture of Musical Taste. He is also the architect of Pandora Radio's Music Genome Project and was the chief musicologist since Pandora's founding in 2000. Nolan, great to talk to you. It was great to talk to you as well. Thank you. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, I talk to one of them, they stay anonymous, I can't hang up, that's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh, somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today. Beautiful Anonymous. 
And now the spiel. At 2 a.m., the New York State Assembly provided the final vote on the environmental bill that will put into place the most aggressive measures to combat climate change in America. In fact, in some ways, it's the boldest climate change legislation ever enacted anywhere in the world. And it almost didn't happen. In fact, it seems so doomed that last Friday I talked to Rebecca C. Lewis, who covers New York politics for City and State magazine. The theme of our conversation was, what doomed the climate bill? Here is how Rebecca, just a few days ago, described the legislation as it stood then. It is more ambitious in that it wants the state to be the entire economy, the it wants the state to be carbon neutral by 2050, uh, 0% of emission levels of uh, 1990, level, 1990 emission levels. And they want to make sure that there is robust investment in disadvantaged communities that have been affected by climate change and that may feel some negative effects of uh, phasing out fossil fuels. Uh, and Cuomo has made it very clear that he thinks that Those goals and that particular investment is not necessarily smart policy. Mm -hmm. It's too ambitious. It's not, you know, something that can realistically get done. The Cuomo is, of course, Andrew Cuomo, New York's governor, who had his own version of a climate bill, which was, in fact, less ambitious than all the goals of the climate bill that environmentalists were backing in the legislature. Now, Cuomo would say it wasn't that it was less ambitious it's that it was more realistic. Cuomo has a fairly good record on the environment. Many environmental groups give him high marks. Others fault him for not going as far as they would like. They wanted a bill called the CCPA. Writing in The Nation magazine, Sean McElwee put it this way, quote, In the States, there have been growing calls to set legally enforceable mandates to combat carbon emissions, In New York, the CCPA would enshrine these mandates into law. There is just one problem, Andrew Cuomo. I asked Rebecca Lewis, was that fair? It's fair in a sense that Cuomo may be standing in the way of the specific climate action that activists want. Right. I mean, he has certainly, I mean, he he has been a good governor for climate change, all things considered, compared to other states. But, Lewis said... He did not think the state could reach 100% renewable energy by 2050. And he also chafed at the New Deal part of this Green New Deal, which was about wage guarantees and labor laws. And yet, as I told you up top, the deal got passed. Or a deal got passed. So I call back Rebecca Lewis today to ask her how much of the environmentalists' wish list was realized. So there were some significant changes to the substance. Uh, Most significant uh, is probably the fact that they changed the ultimate goal. No longer is the state aiming for uh, a 100 percent reduction in carbon emissions by 2050. Instead, it will be an 85 percent reduction with the extra 15 percent offset through carbon recapture or natural carbon sinks, planting forests, the like. Businesses saw a complete phase out as, here is that word again, unrealistic. So you could look at what the state passed as a cop-out and a shame, or you could look at it like Vox did. Here's their headline. New York passes the most ambitious climate target in the country, carbon-free electricity by 2040, and a net zero carbon economy by 2050. The author of that story, Dave Roberts, who's a journalist, but 
I'm not going to say an activist. Let's just say he's a journalist who wears his green passions on his sleeve. Put it this way, quote, advocates didn't get everything they wanted. But in the big picture, the CLCPA, that's the bill. The bill is a huge, huge win. The country's third biggest economy, that's what New York is, has passed its most ambitious economy-wide climate targets, some of the most ambitious climate targets in the world, and hitting those targets will generate ongoing waves of investment into the state's worst-off communities. It's a win for the state's economy, which will soon see a boom in innovation and investment. It's a win for environmental justice, shifting state funding to those most vulnerable, and it's a win for the climate. So the most important thing to know from all of this is that one of the best pieces of climate legislation ever passed is now in place. It's being called a huge win by the people who know the most and care the most about the environment. And it's not perfect. Environmentalists did not run the table. Business groups were not made to bear 100% of the brunt. They lost. They don't like it, but they're not 100% losers. The business-friendly, but also green, greenish, greenish governor, let's call him a teal governor, got to impose some of his, let's say it again, his realism. Also of note, to get this bill passed, the non-environmental parts of it were largely jettisoned. I would say this whole thing is an example of not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. Of course, some activists would say that without holding out for the perfect, As a model, we'd never get to what's good. I would say that stuffing environmental legislation full of economic legislation made the entire thing harder to pass. Perhaps environmentalists would say that still remains a failure of the bill and there is no sugarcoating that failure. But the biggest thing I would say, in fact, I'm going to say it now, I kind of have been all along, is that even without the national government doing diddly squat on the environment, there are many other entities that can do a lot to combat climate change. If Florida and Texas were to elect Democratic governors or legislatures that no longer deny climate change, progress could be made there. The issue is dire, but again, progress can be made. And when it is made, it should be recognized. And the leaders who pass the legislation should be complimented for what they've achieved not faulted for their lack of absolute perfection. It is a good day for the environment in New York State. Let's celebrate, not castigate. And that's it for today's show. PRBNMA and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. They are slowly developing antlers from their use of headphones. Does make storage easier. TJ Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcasts. She now has a prehensile tail from sitting in her chair a weird way. I tell her her chair is not ergonomic. She says ergonomic schmergonomic as she types with both hands, but also opens up a can of LaCroix. The gist. My parents always said, you know, Mike, it behooves you to clip your toenails. And I listened to them. And they were right. And now of hooves. Uproot that peru And thanks for listening. <laughs> 